0: Good morning, Saints. It's good to see you all as we gather for worship on uh, this Lord's Day. Welcome to Providence Presbyterian Church. If you're here uh, visiting with us, we are very happy to have you with us here at Providence. We do hope uh, you are blessed this morning, that you are warmly received by our congregation. If you have any questions, please uh, feel free to ask us. Uh, before we begin our service of worship, friends, we do have a couple of announcements. We are pleased to announce that Chamela Okorfor has been approved for Communicate membership, and so uh, we will uh, receive Uh, Chamela in a worship service very soon. Also, it's not listed here in the bulletin, but I I just thought of this. We are getting close to uh, resuming Sunday school again. We've been on break for the summer, and we are going. We are planning to start Sunday school uh, in the mornings uh, before worship uh, uh, very soon. It's usually the day after or the week after Labor Day, but we'll uh, we'll let you know. And so, just be prepared for that. We are. Uh, planning to start our Sunday school education uh, hour in the fall very soon. Also, if you would, please keep on your minds and your hearts the various prayer requests that are listed there in the insert in the bulletin. This week, our family of the week is uh, Steve and Diane Reardon, so please pray for Steve and Diane. Uh, As many of you know from the emails that were sent out recently, Diane um, uh, suffered a fall and had to undergo surgery on her hip, and so... Uh, She is home now, uh, still going through physical therapy, the surgery went well, um, but uh, you can understand the trial that she's going through, the trial that uh, Steve and Diane are going through. And So please pray for her recovery, her healing, uh, pray for their spiritual sustenance uh, as well. Well, beloved, I believe that takes care of all of the announcements we have gathered here in the name of Christ to worship the only true and living God. As the music plays now, let us prepare our hearts to worship him. saints of Providence Presbyterian Church, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would now please stand as we hear our God call us to worship him from Psalm 122. The Psalm speaks of the city of God, which we will consider in the sermon today. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Let us now sing the doxology. Our Father and our God, we praise you and thank you that you have made us part of an everlasting city, the city of God, that we are citizens of a place in heaven, that we belong to Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And we thank you as citizens of the city that we have the great privilege to gather as your people to worship you in spirit and in truth as we sojourn in this dark age. Father, fill us with perfect peace in Jesus Christ as we declare your praise, as we sing Thanksgiving to you. And as we hear from the voice of our Savior, we pray that you would do this good work in your people to the praise of your glorious grace in Jesus Christ, in whose precious name we pray. Amen. If you would now turn your hymnals to Psalm 146. Praise the Lord, my soul, O praise him. Psalm 146. be seated. We'd like to invite you to turn to the front of the Trinity Hymnal on page Roman numeral 16. On page Roman numeral 16 of your hymnal you will find a list of the Ten Commandments, which is a revelation of the moral uh, will of God to man. Beloved, as we read the Ten Commandments together, let us be mindful of all the ways in which we still, even as God's people, break his holy law. Let us flee for mercy and forgiveness in Christ alone. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, beloved, having heard God's law, let us confess our sins to God together by reciting the prayer of confession that is listed in the insert in your bulletin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. For the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Amen. Well, beloved, God is gracious and merciful. His ears are ever attentive to our cries for mercy and for the forgiveness of sins. And to the Christian, he gives us rock-solid assurance in his word that our sins have been fully and forever forgiven by the blood of his Son, as we see in the book of Revelation chapter 1. If you would now turn in your hymnals to hymn 447, Christ of all my hopes, the ground, hymn 447, and let's all stand together as we sing. I'd like to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. This morning we will look at Philippians chapter 1 and we will consider verses 27 and 28. Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 27 and 28 will be the focus for the sermon this morning. I would like to begin the reading in verse 21, however. Before we hear God's word, if you would, join your hearts together uh, with me in prayer. Let's pray together, friends. Our Father and our God, and indeed as your people, we have been placed upon a path towards Emmanuel's ground towards the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth where Christ will reign forever and ever. And as your people, O God, we are beset both from without and from within with temptation and opposition of all kinds. And so we pray, Father, that as we hear your word read and preached this morning, we ask, O God, that you would give us grace. Father, fill us with peace in Jesus Christ and conform us into his image. Give us the spiritual strength that we need to continue toward the promised land and towards glory with our Savior. Father, do this good work through the preaching of your holy gospel, for we ask this in Christ's holy name, amen. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, beloved, this is the word of God. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord remains forever. Verse 27 marks the beginning of a new section in this book, a new section in Philippians. This section lasts until the end of chapter 2. So we're starting a new section And it goes all the way to the end of chapter 2. We have just finished looking at Paul's missionary report. There he reported on how his imprisonment, remember he's in prison for the gospel, and he's writing to the Philippians, and he tells them at the beginning to tell them how his imprisonment actually served to advance the gospel. He also revealed that he was joyful, and that as he thought about living and dying, he had an internal struggle. Between his desire to die and to be with Christ, for that is far better, that is gain, as he described it, he desired that, but he also understood the necessity that was laid upon him to live and to continue ministry of the gospel for the Philippians. And then ends, that little section ends with him saying, I'm confident that I will return to you. I'm confident I will be freed and I will see you again. Again. Now, he begins to exhort the Philippians to holy living. This is the part where he turns to face the church and says, this is now what you are to do. This is how you are to live. And so this whole section is a call to the church to be more like Christ. This is the overarching theme of this section, call upon the church to be more like Christ. This section then deals with the sanctification of the Christians in Philippi. That is what Paul was concerned with. Dying to sin and more and more living unto righteousness. That is what sanctification is. Dying to sin, living more and more unto righteousness. Or to put it another way, to be made more like Christ. So if you look at this letter as a whole you might see this, that this section is most likely the main part of the letter. It takes up a majority of this book. And so in the, in the midst of writing a thank you note to his church for the monetary gift that they had sent him, if you recall, we've talked about this earlier, if you look towards the end of Philippians, Paul mentions a monetary gift that the Philippians had sent him in prison to help him with his need. And he essentially tells them, thank you. It's, this is a thank you note from Paul to the Philippians for their support, their financial support of his ministry. But within this thank you note, he takes the opportunity as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, to address some concerns that he had with the church, or at least to address some general, uh, a general call to holy living uh, for this church. And so he takes this opportunity to say to the church what he thought needed to be said. This transition in the letter is marked here by the first word in verse 21. Only, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now this is similar, this this phrase here, starting it this way, saying only, and then following this with a command. It's similar to what parents might say to their teenage children, If they are leaving town for a time and they leave the house in charge of their teenage children, they will say to them their report about what will take place once they leave. They'll say something like this. Well, we'll be here on day one and two, then we'll be here on days three and four. This is the name of our hotel. There is food in the fridge. There's a gift card for pizza on Friday night. We will be back on Saturday you all can pretty much do whatever, whatever you want as long as no one else comes over, as long as you meet curfew. Only, above all, when we come back, we don't want to hear that you have been fighting with each other. You see the transition there. A lot of information and then a very direct command. And it's set aside by that phrase, only, only. If you mess up in all of these other things, only make sure you get along with your brothers. you, You get along with one another while we are gone. And so Paul highlights this command only, only live like a Christian. Essentially, that's what he's saying live like a Christian. He then explains further for them what this looks like and what it means. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this phrase, let your manner of life be, is the translation of one word in the Greek. The word that's translated there carries with it the idea of living as a citizen in a certain kingdom, or living as a citizen in a particular city in a certain kingdom or state. Well, Philippi, where these Christians lived, was a Roman colony. And so the citizens in Philippi enjoyed all the privileges and all the rights and the honor that came along with being a Roman, a Roman citizen. So even though they were in Philippi, and which was originally a Greek city, they nevertheless were converted to a Roman colony, and so wherever they went, they were considered as Romans. They were to be treated as Romans. To be Roman in Philippi meant also then... Not only that you enjoyed the privilege and the honor of being a Roman wherever you went, but in, to be a Roman in Philippi also meant that you happily abided by Roman laws and that the Roman emperor, Caesar, was your lord. That's what it also meant to be a Roman citizen. That is what it would look like to be a worthy Roman citizen. Abide by Roman laws and obey and follow the Roman Emperor Caesar. Now, Paul uses a different form of this word later when he says in chapter three to the church, he says, "Our citizenship is in heaven." There, you see the idea or the the meaning of the word come out there: citizenship. And so, let your life or live your life in a manner means to live as a citizen of a particular city. So when Paul says here, just those things, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, he was essentially saying to the Philippians, yes, you are Roman citizens, but as Christians, you have a higher calling. You have a greater Lord. Submit to Caesar, yes, as far as that goes. Pay your taxes, abide by the laws, but when it comes to worship, And when it comes to ultimate authority and ultimate allegiance, your allegiance is with the Lord Jesus Christ, not to Caesar. Wherever you go or whatever you do in the church and outside the church, Paul says you are to live as a citizen of a heavenly city. That is ultimately who you are, foundationally who you are. You are temporarily a Roman citizen. You are temporarily a citizen of the United States. But eternally speaking, from the perspective of eternity, you are a citizen of the city of God. That is your most basic identity through your union with Christ. We are saints in Christ Jesus, as he says at the beginning of this letter. We have been made part of the city of God. That is who we are. And in this particular city, Christ is your Lord, not Caesar, ultimately, And the law that governs this holy city is the gospel. Let your life live your manner in a life that is worthy of the state's laws. No, that is worthy of the gospel, ultimately. Now, part of that is we do that partly by abiding by the state's laws. But our ultimate allegiance is to the word of God, to the gospel of Christ, And what is the gospel? The death and resurrection of Christ. As citizens of heaven, we serve a crucified and risen Lord. A crucified king. A humiliated king. We'll look at his humiliation more in depth in the coming weeks as we get into chapter 2. But he is our Lord a humiliated Savior that is nothing like what the Romans prided themselves on in following the strength and the glory and the self-proclaimed dignity of the power that was behind a Roman Caesar. Very different leadership styles, wouldn't you say? The gospel is the death and resurrection of Christ. As citizens of heaven, we serve a crucified king, so we are obligated then, at all times, to magnify Christ, Christ crucified for us, to make his name glorified through our obedience, whether by life or by death, as Paul said earlier. This is what it means to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. It means that since you have been made to be a Christian by the power of the gospel, flowing from your union with Christ, and out of thankfulness for what your Lord has done, Jesus, You are always expected to adorn the gospel with Christ-like living, to make the gospel look beautiful, adorn it with holy living. Now, we could put it this way. When people come into contact with you, when people come into contact with the church, wherever that may be, and also thinking of those closest to us, our own families, When those people come into contact with us, or when we as families come into contact with others, do those people walk away thinking that the gospel of Christ is something powerful, something beautiful to behold by your conduct? Is that what they think? Or are they thinking something else? That is what Paul means here. To live as a citizen of heaven means just that. When you come into contact with one another, you leave the other person thinking, the gospel, something's there. There's power there because people don't live like that. People don't speak like this person does. Now with this said, what in particular did Paul have in mind here? What is the ornament that Paul wants to see hung upon the Christian faith of the Philippians? Well, particularly what he wants to see here is unity. In verse 27, he says, I want to hear about and know this, whether I'm present with you or whether I see you. So he's looking for sincerity, not just for show. Often we do this, right? We put certain types of obedience on for show. Paul's not looking for show. He wants sincerity. Whether I'm there or whether I'm absent, this is what I want to hear about from you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, there's the mention of the gospel again. We are to live as citizens, worthy in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And now he says, I want to see you standing firm in one spirit for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What is the gospel again? The death and resurrection of the Lord of our city, Jesus Christ, a crucified governor, a crucified city governor, that is our king. Now, the idea behind standing firm and striving side by side here is that of conflict. This is like, the idea behind this is like that of soldiers standing firm, side by side together against a common enemy on the battlefield. Or, teammates on a sports team standing side by side with one spirit in one mind contending against a common opponent on the sport in the sports arena whatever that may be that is how christians are to live christians are to be united in their fight In their fight against what? In their fight against sin and in their fight against the devil. And so we are in a contest. Like a war, like the war that goes on in a sports arena, we are in a contest. And therefore, it's imperative that we remain united. The unity that Paul envisions for them here is comprehensive. There's there's no wiggle room. He says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one spirit mind this mention of spirit and mind here refers to the fullness of our being both our thinking and our willing he wants all of you and all of us to be one soul to have one purpose to have one goal in mind to be heavenly minded to be unified you understand? we can understand what paul is trying to get get across here you can imagine the detriment that a teammate or soldier would bring upon his, his fellow teammates or his fellow soldiers if he thought to go and do his own thing, to, have, to be double-minded, to be double-willed, to not have defeat of the enemy as the ultimate goal. You can see what kind of damage that would bring to a community. And so, collectively, we the church are to have one soul, as it were. We are to all be thinking along the same lines and be doing along the same lines as well. And so it should be this way in our marriages. It should be this way in our families and collectively in the church. For we are one body, the body of Christ. So unity is what Paul is after here. Now this doesn't mean, friends, as you hear these things, it doesn't mean that we all have to agree on every little Thing That is not what Paul is saying either. Nor does it mean that we all have to do the things that we are called to do in exactly the same way. That is not at all what Paul is saying. There is always going to be some measure of diversity within the body of Christ. And that diversity actually adds to the beauty of the body of Christ. It shows that not one person can do it all. And not one person's ways accomplishes all in the same way way that another person does the things that they're called to do and the way they do them and so in some measure there is going to be uh, diversity we aren't called to agree on every little thing and do everything exactly the same way actually that's more like a non-christian cult that's what cults are after they can form everyone into the image of their false religious uh, leader that is not what uh, is called for at all but what all of us are to agree on is this. That we will seek to live as good citizens of a heavenly city and live lives that make the gospel of Christ attractive. That should be easy, right? There shouldn't be much discussion or debate about that. That is what we are all called to do. To live as good citizens of the city of God and to live our lives in a way that makes Christ attractive attractive, that magnifies him. Now, how do we do this? Well, one way is to put to death our selfish pride and to love one another so that we might be unified. Again, we can't stand side by side if we are selfish and unloving. That's a team of one. There's no such thing. And so we have to put to death our selfish pride and love one another. This is important to do because the church is in a cosmic battle, as we have said. Believers who are alive today, you and I, are referred to in theology as the church militant, meaning we are in a contest, we are in a battle, we have an opponent. As long as we are alive on this earth as Christians, we are opposed by the devil, we are at war against the devil and our sin. Paul brings this state that that we are the church militant into view in verse 28. He says, again, have one spirit, one mind, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, what is in view here is no less than salvation and destruction and the opposition that we have in this life, what is in view here is no less than the progress of human history toward eternal salvation for the elect and eternal destruction for all those who oppose the gospel. That is what Paul has in mind. The end. The culmination of of human history. Salvation and destruction. It is no less than that. At the end of the age. That is, what, that is where Paul is coming from. Opposition to the gospel in whatever form. Whether it be from persecution of the pagans. Like the Roman government. As the Philippians may have experienced here in Paul's day. or Whether it be from false teaching. Like the Judaizers he mentions in chapter 3. And we still deal with false teaching in the church. And we always will deal with that. In whatever form our opposition takes or whatever form the opposition to the gospel takes, all of that opposition is led by Satan, our arch enemy. And so we are in opposition to him. Whatever forms those take, it's him leading the charge against us. And so again, we are in the midst of a cosmic battle as Christians. We have to understand that. Now to be sure, as we think about this. Satan is a defeated foe. His destruction is certain. Jesus has bound the strong man. His end is coming. His time is short. But until his ultimate end comes, he does oppose the gospel. We do have opponents. We have opponents that are ultimately defeated, but they oppose us nonetheless. Now, one of the ways that he tries to oppose our work, that is the devil, is to divide us. But Paul says here, in light of the spiritual battle battle that we are in, it is crucial that you stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Satan would love nothing more than to separate the sheep, isolate a sheep so that he can have his way with him or her. A united fold, a united church led by a shepherd is strong, strong against the wolves, Paul reminds us of our victory here. He says, we fight, yes, we have an opponent, we struggle, we strive together side by side, we are opposed, sometimes violently, but Christ's resurrection assures us of ultimate victory that will come later. later. But even now, we can know the outcome. We can have assurance of the outcome even now. And Paul says here, when the world and the false church opposes you, When you suffer, when you experience that opposition, that form of suffering is actually a sign for you of their certain destruction. It's somewhat ironic and it somewhat doesn't make sense because when you are feeling that opposition, it feels as though they have the upper hand. That is the kind of situation Paul was in. We could look at his predicament and say, they've won. They've put him in chains. They've put our apostle in prison. They're winning the war. We're losing. And yet, Paul says, No, that's not how you are to interpret these things. When they oppose you, it's a clear sign to you, the church, that they will be destroyed. And so we have assurance, even in our suffering, that. Our victory is secured and their destruction as well is certain. And so, while it may feel for a time on the church's side that our opponents have the upper hand, that they have the upper hand in opposing us, what is true is that their opposition to the gospel is like a giant, brightly illuminated billboard above their heads that says, We will lose. (laughs) We are finished. This will end in utter failure. That is what Paul is saying. Their opposition is a sign to you of their destruction and by necessity on the other side of that of your salvation. On the other side of this, your pain, your suffering at the Lord's opposition or by the Lord's opposition from the attacks of Satan, it's tangible proof, a clear sign that you will be saved. That you will be held in God's hand and saved, ultimately, at the end. That you are on the right side of this great spiritual battle. Our opposition certifies that fact. Now, this certainly lies not in your own abilities or in your own resources, but in the power of God. It is a clear sign of their destruction, Paul says, and your salvation, and this from God. All of those things we have just mentioned, the certainty of the destruction of those who oppose the gospel and the certainty of our salvation all comes from God. And so in the end, God will destroy and God will save. So that in Christ, we are more than conquerors. He will have the victory. He will prevail. God will prevail. God destroys. God saves. And you are on the right side. In Christ, you will have victory. How can Paul now how can Paul speak like this with such conviction about our suffering, though? How can he speak so bluntly, directly, with such authority? Because this was Christ's own experience, friends. during Christ's ministry on earth, Satan threw everything that he had at Jesus. He opposed Christ. He was his opponent. He opposed Christ fulfilling the gospel. He wanted to try to get him to stand down, to stop striving. Jesus was striving towards the cross, and Satan wanted him to stop. And so what did he do? In the end, Satan entered Judas, who betrayed Jesus, and he was also at work in the crowds. While Jesus was, while they yelled repeatedly for Jesus to come down from the cross, tempting Jesus to use his power against his father's will, that was the work of Satan. That was Satan attempting, opposing the gospel, attempting to lure Christ into not fulfilling his father's will. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. That is opposition to the gospel. To lure, try and lure Christ from not obeying the will of God. And what did Jesus do though? In the face of that opposition, he stood firm. He continued to strive with one mind and one spirit, one single purpose in mind. What was that? Doing his Father's will. No. This is what I've been called to do. To suffer and to die for my people. I will not come down. I will not stand down. Jesus would not stop until his work was complete, until he gave that final breath. And that is... Ultimately, what we are called to do, to strive, to not stop until Christ takes us, until he comes again. And so, Paul can speak this way because of what happened to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that work that Jesus would not stop from fulfilling, that work consisted in being obedient to the point of death by crucifixion. That is what he refused to give up. He had a, a multitude of ways to end his suffering. He had a multitude, and a, really an infinite amount of power, to access to end his suffering, and he refused to do so because he was of one mind, and that one mind consisted in him being crucified, killed for us. That is the kind of mind that we are to have. He is our Lord. That is the governor of this city that we have been made a part of. Jesus is the one we are called to imitate then in our lives as Christians, dying for one another for the sake of unity. That's a life that's worthy of the gospel. To Christ be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Let's pray together, friends. We give you thanks, O God, for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ, who has ultimately vanquished our enemies. He has bound the strong man by his death and resurrection. And so even as your people, even as the citizens of heaven, sojourn through this dark age, and as we deal with the city of man, the dark uh, opposition that comes from the leader of this earthly city, Satan himself. We pray, Father, that you would give us strength to obey your word, give us strength to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Father, help us by your grace to be unified in this call and remind us, O Lord, that those who oppose us, their destruction is certain and our salvation is secure. So in light of this reality for the church, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, build us up, and help us uh, to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for the nations of the world and for our nation. We thank you, O God, that you are the sovereign ruler over heaven and earth, and that you raise up kings and bring them down in accordance with your will, and that you turn the heart of rulers like a river in your hand and so we pray father that uh, your will would be accomplished through even the wicked deeds of uh, wicked rulers around the world and we pray especially for the citizens of these places that you would be merciful to them and show them compassion we pray that the suffering of these uh, people would lead them to find mercy in Jesus Christ to be built up by him Father, we lift up to you those nations that have closed off their doors to the word of God and to the hearing of the gospel. We pray, Father, that in accordance with your will that you would send your servants in to these places to bring light into darkness, that the elect might be drawn to the preaching of your word. Father, we pray for our nation. We ask that you would be merciful to our civil servants whom you have raised up in accordance with your holy will. Remind us, O God, as citizens of heaven of our ultimate allegiance. Help us to be obedient uh, to the leaders that you have placed uh, over us and that we would honor them uh, to a certain degree. But above all, we pray that you would remind us of our heavenly calling, that we would live as citizens of, of the city of God founded upon the gospel of our Savior. Father, we pray for our missionaries whom you've sent out into the world. We pray that you would fill them with your grace, fill them with your spirit, that they would be unified in their calling. We think of the Payson serving in uh, Uruguay and the Richlands as well. Father, may they strive side by side for the gospel. We pray for the work of church planting in our region, asking that you would bless Reverend Sumter and our various church plants and our sister denominations as well, and those churches that faithfully proclaim the word. We pray, Father, that you would remind them of the certainty of their salvation. Father, we pray now for the needs of our particular church, Providence. We thank you for the families and that you've brought to us and for our visitors and for every member. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would work in us unity in the body and help us to um, contest, uh, compete against the devil and to oppose his work by faith in, in you. Father, we lift up to you those who face trials of various kinds, who are, um, who are brought down uh, by physical ailments and even uh, suffer anguish uh, mentally and spiritually. We pray that you would lift them all up. We thank uh, in this regard of Eileen Vanderley, Dorothy Lowry, Kay Johnson, Sue's mother, Jean Davies, Hal Griswold, Alan, Corey's mother, Cornelia, Hikari, Rosalie, for the, the Broccolo family, Iona, Claire. We pray for Diane Reardon. We pray that you would bless her and be with the Milam family. and uh, Father, bless them all as they grieve, and as they suffer in this age, we pray that you would strengthen them by your gospel and uh, sustain their faith. Father, we pray for the forces as they search for a home. We pray that you would lead them by your infinite wisdom and bless them. And Father, we lift up to you those with cancer as we think of uh, Kay's sister-in-law, Arlene, Kathy, Jim, Witt, Laura's friend, William, John and Kathy Burleson, Chris Dooby's parents. We pray Father, that you would be at work in their hearts and that you uh, would give them healing in accordance with your will and direct all that they go through uh, to the praise of your glory. Father, we lift up to you our mission work in Ukraine, our expectant mothers, and we do pray for rain for this dry and weary land. We pray that you would open up the heavens. as We recognize that uh, rain falls as a result of your sovereign power. And in accordance with your will. And so we pray, Father, that you would be merciful to this region and bless us with abundant uh, rain for our land. Father, we lift up to you the reardens. We pray that you would bless them and keep them. We thank you for their faith and service and for their uh, self-sacrifice for this church and for, the worship, uh, uh, for their worship among the people of God. We lift them up to you, especially now as Diane is uh, suffering physically. We pray that you would grant her physical healing and grant her rest and grant her spiritual rest in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would uh, draw near to Steve as he cares for his wife, that they too would strive side by side for the faith together, even as they endure this trial uh, with one another. We pray that you would fill our hearts with compassion, that we would serve all of their needs, pray for them continually. Father, we commit all of these things to you through our Savior and King Jesus Christ who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, beloved, we now have the opportunity to give to the work of the gospel and the advancement of Christ's kingdom in this world. May the Lord Jesus Christ be pleased to use our donations for his glory and for his purposes. Amen. We now turn in your uh, hymnal to page eight fifty one at the back. You'll find the Apostles' Creed there. If you need to turn there, and we will confess the Apostles' Creed together as a confession of our faith in the Gospel of Christ. And let us all stand together as we do so, friends. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If you would now turn in your hymnals to hymn 405, 405, I love thy kingdom, Lord.